0: Welcome to Up the Creek, where we look at how institutions and individuals found themselves up the creek and dissect their efforts to reach calmer waters. I'm Ben Haslam. And I'm Mark Forbes. As journos, we prompted resignations and caused royal commissions. As consultants, we protect reputations when crisis comes. Today, we focus our reputation eye on a two-decade-old global scandal, the controversy over claims that Iraq and Saddam Hussein possessed deadly biological and chemical weapons of mass destruction, WMDs, which led to the Iraq war. And that WMD intelligence,
1: was it? the centre of debates, not just here in Canberra, but in the United Nations, the US and the UK, as we followed those two nations into war in Iraq in March 2003. And that intelligence was at the centre of the debates at the UN and Canberra as we followed the US and the UK into war in Iraq. And questions continued to be asked about the validity of that intelligence after the invasion failed to unearth a
0: single weapon of mass destruction. This was a while ago, so you may ask, why are we talking about this now?
1: Well, it's a significant event in history, but the reason it's actually important today is that we had a release of secret cabinet papers from uh, 20 years ago. As they do every 20 years, they declassify these, and it reignited the controversy over WMD um, and our whole decision about joining the war because it turned out the WND wasn't the only thing that went missing. The government has now ordered a former intelligence chief to investigate how some key intelligence documents mysteriously weren't handed over to the National Archives and made available for release. Now, the results
0: of that investigation should be revealed soon, Mark, but spoiler alert, you, my co-presenter, Mark Forbes, may be able to reveal what is in those documents and why they were controversial enough to try and suppress today. So were you involved in this saga, Mark Forbes? Well, back then I was the Defence and Foreign Affairs correspondent
1: for The Age, based in Canberra. So I was covering the lead up to the war and its aftermath. I even got to uh, visit Baghdad after its capture, accompanying uh, Foreign Minister Alexander Downer.
0: So how was the Hilton in Baghdad, Mark?
1: well it was it was actually uh, Saddam's water pelts uh, where where the uh, australian um, sas uh, and uh, and commanders had uh, had put up camp camp beds inside the water it was a bizarre place right it was like a a, a fantasy playground for saddam and his uh, and, and his sons where they got to i think up to all sorts of nefarious uh, activities um Probably the most bizarre experience there was that uh, uh, I was up on the roof of the Water Palace with a few of the troops who'd set up a a hooker, a a smoking device, let's be clear, for for Downer uh, when he got back from a a meeting with other military commanders. Um, And uh, beautiful, actually, beautiful sunset calm and peaceful Then suddenly as it started to get to dusk there was the rat-a-tat-tat of machine guns and small arms fire and I got all excited thinking shit you know fighting breaks out again in Iraq you intrepid correspondent the only journo there on the spot because it was just me traveling with Downer um, and it uh, gave the SAS blokes a bit of a giggle and said mate this is this is every night Every night we
0: <laughs> note uh, note to the editor: be very careful how if you edit this section where we have uh, words such as hooker and set up for Alexander Downer. Just to clarify, we are talking about the uh, yeah, the smoking device popular in uh, Middle Eastern countries. Um, but
1: the, but that- the interesting thing about that, to me, too, in terms of what happened afterwards, was that it demonstrated. Or was a signal of, of of what was to come because basically the soldiers said, "Oh no, at six o'clock. All the American military stop patrolling. Everyone comes back inside the green zone and effectively hand over Baghdad uh, to uh, to anyone with a gun." It um, it just it, it said that that the the peace was null, going to be nowhere as easy as uh, as as the Yanks had uh, had been told us. Mm.
0: Well, um, considering the closest I got to military action was covering the. Uh British warship that ran aground on uh, Lord Howe Island back in 2002. I- I'm very impressed, Mark, but I think we're going to be more impressed by what follows. Did you come across any weapons of mass destruction while you were there?
1: Well, that was interesting. I mean, that that was where I, I, I first really picked up on the WMD story when one senior intelligence official basically uh, in, a, in a conversation over a beer or two uh, on the trip basically said, oh, we're not going to find WMD. Longer. What? He said, no, nah. no. Nah. <laughs> weren't, weren't there uh, weren't there all along um and so I took a fairly keen interest in in that as uh, as that sparked me as a good potential uh, potential story in fact the military uh, knew that you know from uh, from day one and after we got back from this trip uh, to Iraq I was actually invited to uh, uh, undertake a master's degree at the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at the Australian National University now, this centre is very closely linked to the Defence Department. They have people moving from the Defence Department to to the centre all the time. They're they sort of in the circle of trust, I suppose, in uh, you, know, you know defence and and foreign affairs uh, up in up in Canberra. And so our seminars were were often addressed by. Know, top generals uh, top uh, top diplomats uh, top departmental officials um, and our briefing on intelligence came from the head of the military's primary intelligence agency the defense intelligence organization and when he spoke to us and there had been about 25 of us in the room uh, for this seminar and ta- he, he spoke about Iraq and WM- WMD because it was still a hot topic then just a few months a- uh, after the war uh, and he dropped the bombshell. He said that the DAO assessed there was no credible threat from a rights That's
0: interesting because this that actually contradicts what then Prime Minister John Howard told Parliament to justify Australia declaring war. I mean, basically what you're saying, Mark, is it would mean it took us to war based on a lie. Plenty of people have said that. That's the biggest decision a leader can make and yet it sounds like it was based on, at best, misinformation.
1: Well, that's certainly what what, uh, what uh, Frank Luwenkamp, who was a I head, was was suggesting. Um, and what happened after that was an interesting <laughs> saga uh, that that ended up with a, a serious attack on my reputation, a Senate inquiry, uh, numerous questions in Parliament, uh, an own new investigation and a high-profile resignation.
0: And that information was what was removed from this year's release, you think?
1: Well... Quite possibly. I, I think so. And because that issue about whether Australia's intelligence assessments on Iraq were misrepresented by uh, by the Prime Minister is still a hot topic today. Mm. I mean, I think 10 years back it was uh, John Howard gave, gave a speech where he uh, t- told, I think, the Lowy Foreign Policy Institute that joining the Iraq invasion was the most controversial foreign policy decision he'd taken, and it... it led, he said, to the most notorious notorious claim ever levelled against him that he took Australia to war based on a lie.
0: Now, Australia is usually a big player in these big international debates. What what was the context here?
1: Yeah, well, to take one step back, I mean, the issue of Iraq and terrorism and weapons of mass destruction, they all loomed large after the September 11 attack on New York's World Trade Center in 2001. And Even then, the Bush administration was quick to point fingers at Iraq and Saddam, despite all the evidence pointing to Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda, which
0: was then based in Afghanistan. So I think George Bush Jr. felt his father should have finished the job and uh, disposed of Saddam Hussein in the earlier first Gulf War, as it's known, when the, uh, the US and the Allies went in to help liberate Kuwait, which had been invaded by the Iraqis. The US wanted to bolster its Allies in the Middle East and remove an enemy.
1: Yeah, but but first off, <laughs> insensibly, the US and Australia invaded Afghanistan mm. to destroy al-Qaeda and to find Osama bin Laden, or try and find him. They actually nabbed him in Pakistan some years later. Yeah. Um, they toppled the Taliban, uh, but Bush and people in his administration continued to push hard for international support to invade Iraq. Now, this was a bit tricky because... They couldn't find any smoking gun linking Sept- uh, Saddam to September eleven because there wasn't one, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so they turned to the threat of weapons of mass destruction and potential future chemical or, or biological attacks as a justification. Because Saddam had, in years past, hmm. used chemical weapons uh, primarily against on the Kurds. Yeah, on the Kurds yeah, yeah, that's right. So
0: the US wanted international support. For its invasion, so it needed to demonstrate a threat to the rest of the world from Iraq.
1: Yeah, and so they turned to intelligence reports to say that uh, these reports detailed Iraq's WMD efforts, um, and suggesting that this presented a real threat. Given the growth in terrorism and the the, the global instability after September eleven that, you know, countries like Australia and the US and the UK could have, you know, dirty bombs, nuclear bombs, you know, chemical weapons uh, uh, used to attack their uh, their population. Trouble was this intelligence looked a bit thin mm. uh, and uh, there began to be some fairly voluble question, questions raised about it, even within the intelligence community. And it became a big issue what Australian intelligence was actually saying about these claims.
0: Mm. I mean, of course, you've got to remember that it was kind of across party lines in a way because Tony Blair, British Labor Prime Minister, I think to this day is a great defender of the invasion of Iraq, despite the fact um, that there was a lot of doubt at the time about WMDs. Yep.
1: And and, and Howard, when making the justification to, to, to you know, go to war, basically, told Parliament pretty clearly, we're going in to join this so-called coalition of the willing Mm. to disarm Iraq's WMDs. Um, He said that the intelligence analysis tells us Saddam Hussein, and I'm giving a quote here, considers these weapons programs to be essential and Iraq's continued possession and pursuit of weapons of mass destruction represents a real and unacceptable threat. Um, Problem was, as we now know when the Coalition of the winning Willing quickly
0: overran Iraq, there were no weapons of mass destruction to be found. Yet the head of military intelligence told your ANU seminar they knew that from day one. Yes, yes. And I was pretty stunned to hear it. So,
1: of course, as a, as a journo, and, and the the, 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 uh, the man concerned, Frank Lernkamp, knew I was a journo. We'd, we'd uh, met each other before. Um... Uh, told us that while Iraq had had chemical weapons some years before, it had destroyed its WMT capabilities. And if they held any weapons, they were likely to be fragile, degraded uh, and remnants from that 1990-91 uh, Gulf War. Mm. Um, and so I stuck my hand up <laughs> and said, so could that justify an invasion of Iraq? And he just said no. Jeez. <laughs> okay. Well, did you tell the prime minister that Frank? And he went, "Yes."
0: Um, no pun intended, but didn't he realise that this was a fairly explosive thing to say to a journalist?
1: I think he was—he he, was—he was far more focused on rather the ramifications of information about the reputation of the intelligence agencies, particularly his intelligence agencies. I mean, he was talking to a bunch of relatively bright, with my exception, sort of people who are <laughs> uh, likely to be, be poached for senior roles amongst the military strategy organisations and, and um, defence intelligence organisations. So he really wanted to tell us, and maybe there was a bit of ego in this, but don't blame us mm. about WMD. You know, we got it right.
0: But this meant the government got it wrong. Now, I know you weren't sitting there with a hat with a press card stuck in the side of it, or maybe you were, but didn't he realise that this could be reported?
1: Listen, given the significance of what he was saying, I think he should have. But these seminars were conducted under what they call the, the Chatham House Rule, mm. which a lot of people don't fully understand. Some people think that means anything is said there, stays there, remains secret. But that rule, which is based on uh, the... Uh, originated from the, the actual Chatham House in London, um, states that comments can be reported as long as the speaker and the meeting are not
0: identified. Now, now I know that as a journalist that, that great feeling, that rush you get when you realise you've uncovered something that you want the whole, you, know, you think the whole world needs to know this. And, and this is a great yarn. I mean, you must have been busting to report it. And as long as you did not identify the who and the where, as you pointed out, you weren't breaching Chatham House rules. Uh Absolutely. Although what what I really wanted was to be able to
1: quote and name Lewenkamp, Camp as I as I said to him because mm. listen, I jumped up straight away, dashed straight down to him and said, Frank, my that that's really important information there. I think the public should know about that, um, uh, which uh, with with which he agreed, um, but. Uh, said I'd, I needed to talk to him about how we could report it. So we actually went on to have a series of meetings where um, he had some strange views on how I could report it. He thought, well, can't you just pose it as a series of questions? Wouldn't you think that Australia's military intelligence would have realised there was no WND in Iraq? And I'm going, mate, what's significant about that is that you're saying that and you head up that organisation. Mm. I suggested that we put the you know the notes and the detail of what he told that seminar to one side and simply sit down and do an on the record interview and just say what he was willing to say uh, on that topic and then I could publish that. Now we he still didn't want to be named mm. and so uh, eventually I went back and said, listen I think this information is in the public interest. It really needs to report it. I am going to use under the Chatham House rule the information that you provided. I'm not going to identify you. I'm simply going to quote you as a senior intelligence source in which he said, that's fine. Um, He wanted some reassurances. He'd been fairly frank in in some of our discussions. He went into more detail and more damning detail about the government and his then minister. um, And I assured him that... Yeah, I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to report uh, report that.
0: But did he realize? Do you think he realized the ramifications? I mean, this was going to implicate the prime minister of the day.
1: I don't think that sunk in. I really don't think that that sunk in. I'm, and I probably didn't point that out, mate. I was very eager to get that story <laughs> up. And this had been this had been a period of months of, of, of negotiations. I had a yes, and I was going. I was going to run with it. Um, hmm. uh, and when we did publish uh, the, the following day, uh, it you know, ran across page one, of course, but then uh, you know, the bullets really started to fly. There was sort of a, a political furor, a witch hunt started going on about who was the source. Uh, a Senate inquiry was established to try and uh, find the source. Interestingly... They didn't actually, despite all of those efforts, over four days they couldn't work out who it was. Um, I refused Why to... Why s- didn't
0: they join the dots? Did not someone realise that Mark Forbes was attending a master's course at ANU and, and Mr Camp had, uh, had been speaking at that particular uh, I su- course?
1: I suspect there was some in power who uh, did, did realise, but if, from a government's perspective... Did they really want to come out and say so we think that was a head of the defence intelligence organisation who said we misrepresented the intelligence? I think I think he, he probably would have got away with it, but then I think about four days on, he volunteered to the uh, to the Senate committee he that he was uh, that he was source. Um, he didn't have to do that. No. Um, it was sort of a, a, an interesting uh, It was an interesting move. Um, what he did is he said, I was a source but some of the elements in the quotations in there weren't accurate. He wouldn't have said things that way. But he was very unclear about what he hadn't said. Okay, here's
0: your chance, Mark. Did you get any of the quotes wrong?
1: Um, no, not, not not. I don't believe so. No, okay. I don't believe so and, in fact, he... Um, if you look at some of the things, I subsequently found some uh, testimony he had provided to another inquiry uh, prior to, uh, to to this seminar, which had never been published. Uh, I got alluded to it after this story appeared. It was interesting then um, that he had said things that were very, very similar okay. in almost the same words as some of the things that... Um, uh, that, uh, that, he had, uh, ..that he had said to me.
0: So um, how did the government react to you personally?
1: The... It wasn't so much direct attack from the government, although obviously Howard and his ministers were, were you know, defending their contact, conduct and defending the decision and saying it was the right decision at the time... The biggest attack uh, really came from the head of the, uh, the uh, Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU um, who wrote to the media claiming the report was unethical, the Chatham House rule had been breached, and as a result, all journalists should be banned in future from attending courses of, 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 uh, of, of this type. Um, it, I think in many ways he was... Trying to maintain the relationship with the Defence Department, feel do the right thing by the government. I mean, he had actually come from the uh, yeah. from 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 the Defence Department, but this actually sparked another debate um, uh, about but journalists. Did you, but did you get any support
0: from from anyone in government or?
1: I think interestingly there were. There were a lot of attacks, a lot of assumptions that that uh, uh, that I'd breached some sort of ethical undertaking, particularly around Chatham House. I was actually at a press conference in um, in Parliament House, and uh, someone I think from one of your former publications enthusiastically uh, doorstopped Alexander Downer uh, and said. Um, do you believe this journalist has acted unethically uh, and and broken the you know the Chatham House uh, the Chatham yes, House rules? Yes, the
0: media reporting about the media, how unusual!
1: <laughs> and Dan, uh bless him, uh, basically said, "Well, you know, I've been to Chatham House, I know Chatham House, and on my understanding, I don't think the journalist has done anything to breach those rules," um, which took the heat off me to a degree, but. What happened, instead of there being this massive debate about which I thought was going to happen, did we go to war on a lie, the, the bulk of the stories were about journalism, ethics, confidentiality of sources uh, and, and so on. It actually quite, um, I, it was interesting, I got a few days later a call from the Vice Chancellor of the Australian National University who says, we really want to stop all this publicity. It looks really bad for us. We don't want to be seen as saying journalists shouldn't, it shouldn't uh, you know, a- a- attend uh, attend courses and so on. Um, uh, and I did point out, mate, that it was it's <laughs> one of your professors who's out there fanning the, these flames mm-hmm. and saying things that are untrue. I, I ran through a few of the. Um, uh, uh, a few of the uh, circumstances, including that I had been to this professor prior to publishing the story uh, and uh, went through the issue that I was facing and the definition of the Chatham House rule and got him to agree to that, all of which was missing mm. uh, in his um, public public attacks. And so the yeah, ANU launched uh, an investigation. Um, in the end, they... Um, they exonerated me and I was invited to continue uh, to complete my master's and uh, the uh, professor concerned uh, resigned.
0: I mean inquiry or no inquiry I would argue that you acted 100% in the public interest you never identified the source and at no time was the course content described to you as off the record and Camp knew you were there. He does strike me as as a a little naive. Yeah, although, I mean, I do
1: think there is, listen, it's a bit of a grey area. Yeah. I mean, if you really worked hard by the fact I said I attended something, I think I called it a briefing, you could argue that it would be possible for someone to join the dots. Um, Over four days of intense interest. They they didn't, and Frank uh, and and Frank identified uh, identified himself. But yeah. then there was that competing drive in terms of what's in the public interest here, as you say, and what bigger decision can a government make than mm. taking a nation oh. to war? One hundred percent. And yeah, personally, I've always felt that it was absolutely critical that that was done in a way that was transparent honest and, and, and straightforward, and I'm, I'm still surprised. Well, not surprised in a sense that it's still a live debate
0: today, but I think it should have been a bigger debate. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so let's fast forward 20 years. Here we are in 2024. There are missing documents from the National Archives released on New Year's Day. Um, do you think... Um, what do you think is in those missing documents, if and, if and if they see the light of day? Well, we
1: can we can go from from what we've been told, which is that they were the submission to the National Security Committee of Cabinet, which is a small grouping of yep. you know, defence, foreign affairs, prime minister, and others Journey that General. looks at the, the really sensitive stuff. Um, they were the submissions that they'd been provided that made the case to join the coalition of the of the willing, and mm-hmm. just before the release on uh, New Year's Day uh, this year, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet revealed that they uh, were the key security committee documents uh, and they had not been handed across to the National Archives with all the other documents from 2003 in 2020.
0: And that's when the Leaders were still in power. They were led by one Scott Morrison, who just this month has announced he's leaving Parliament, Um, Seems like a fairly convenient way to protect John Howard, who is definitely their elder statesman. They're they're blaming at this point, as I say, there's an
1: investigation underway, but they're blaming initially an administrative oversight caused by the disruptions of COVID. It just seems to me more than passing strange that the one file that goes missing is probably the most contentious file that had been in the government's
0: possession for that year's or subsequent years well that's right I mean it's a uh, bizarre can, uh, coincidence if, it, if if it is just uh, a fluke I'm not aware ever of this ever happening previously in releasing um, National Archives on the 1st of January and when the first time it does happens yeah it just happens to be these these documents so so is the smoking gun likely to be in there and uh, will the documents ever turn up?
1: I think the documents will probably turn up because of the amount of attention there and also you now have a Labor government in power for whom it's quite convenient if this ends up to be embarrassing uh, for for you know, one Scott Morrison but, but more importantly for the elder statesman of the Liberal Party, um, John Howard. But I'll be curious, I suspect that... There will be some caution in the language in those documents, and we we do see uh, when we do see them. I think that there will be a little bit of hedging bets, so everyone will be able to claim, you know, their their version of the truth was correct. But then again, Lewin Camp was emphatic when he spoke to me yeah. and the other students, saying that the PM had been told there was no threat from WMD in Iraq, um, and how later commissioned a much more broad-ranging inquiry into our intelligence agencies undertaken by Philip Frudd, who was a former director of the Office of National Assessments, which is the intelligence-gathering agency or assessment agency within the Prime Mm. Minister's office. And that flood inquiry did touch on WMD intelligence. It noted that there were no comprehensive national assessment produced, uh, which you would have thought, on a matter of this significance, that someone would have put together all the Australian intelligence made a definitive finding, and I think maybe it was convenient for people that that wasn't done, given that they were desperate. Uh, yep. For the search
0: to join. For the record, I'm shaking my head here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we all know. I mean, the fact is, the primary driver of Australian poli- uh, foreign policy and defence decisions has been to strengthen the US alliance. Yeah, of and that is really why they wanted to. Hmm. Why they wanted to go in. It was a question of what is the justification that is going to wash with the Australian people? As in, you might be a threat of chemical weapons if if we don't do it. But uh the, the flight inquiry made some findings that that did suggest that what Lawn Camp said to the seminar was accurate. He found that the DIA had in several notable, notable cases chose not to endorse Allied intelligence judgments. Um, and that the DOO had placed a grade of qualifications on its assessments and other intelligence agencies, and in that in that crucial time in January two thousand and three, when the ONA was reporting assessed that Iraq must have WMD, the Do reporting did not.
0: Okay, Mark, that's a, an amazing inside story. Of um, course, one of the purposes of our podcast is to talk about crises and reputation and issues management. So, what does this tell us about that?
1: Well, <clears throat> hold the front page. Um, perhaps you can't trust the politicians to tell the truth. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think it's this is this is a you know a little off tangent. I think from some of our normal normal commentary, but I, th- I think there's some interesting lessons there uh, about how people deal with these massive controversies and, and issues. Uh, unfortunately you might say I think the tactic that some took uh, when the big suggestion of winter war on a lie came out was was distraction. Let's point in the other direction. Let's talk about how the Juno got this information, not what the information was um, and, and let's let's have a debate around that um, and we'll just hope that that other issue will will put a few doubts and question marks over it and that it disappears and we don't actually have to uh, address it. So I think it says something uh, about the potential effectiveness of deflection and, and distraction. Yeah. The lesson for me is that... There were massive consequences of this. I mean, there's obviously consequences for the for the reputations potentially of the politicians involved, the reputations of the various intelligence agencies for being politically compromised, and that was definitely seen to be the case in both the US and the UK. And in some cases it seems that might have
0: happened. And here. an emerging an issue that's emerged over the last twenty years at least in Australia is the politicization of the public service. And so that, that goes to that. I mean just to, to sort of to emphasize the magnitude of this decision. This was the first time, if I'm not wrong, that Australia had ever invaded had ever invaded another country. Australia had previously had gone in to defend or liberate another country. Um, so this was a huge decision.
1: Oh, and and it was a, a decision of massive global consequences. And I think that what we have seen, and perhaps if there'd been a more factual debate around why we were going to Iraq, it might not have happened, but clearly that decision was a strategic disaster because you know the Americans they won the war but they they mismanaged the peace they they, they got rid of they disbanded the Iraqi army they um, they had this program of debarthification like the bath the bath, bathers party yeah, which was, is Hussein's party like if you were a senior public servant you had to be a member of a party yeah. and the Americans said okay anyone who's been a member of, of the, the party, can't have a job in government. Um, and so you lost all your but expertise. Created,
0: they created a huge vacuum, power vacuum yeah. in Iraq, but didn't have any plans of how they're going to fill it. Yeah.
1: And 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 the terrorists said thank you very much, and they came in and grew and grew even stronger. And at the same time we we're doing this, we took our eye off the ball in Afghanistan, which had actually been quite a successful invasion. Uh and and that was allowed to deteriorate to the point where the you know Taliban is is now back in back in power, uh, and there's a question of the, if, if, if all these episodes have actually contributed to the decline of the influence of the West and particularly America. So there's been massive consequences, and maybe if we'd had, you know, the right debate at the right time and talked really about what we were trying to achieve there, that we wouldn't have gone in and the world would arguably a safer place. Mind you, Howard and others will, will, will still say at the time, we think we we think we did the right
0: thing. But yeah, and I think and I think it damaged Howard's reputation. I mean, um, you know, still regarded by many as one of Australia's uh, better prime ministers. But the first thing critics send, seem to discuss or point to when they want to put down John Howard is, is Iraq. I mean, they they say some fairly defamatory things about him, which I won't repeat here on the podcast. But I think that's right. I think he, I think that's the one probably big black mark that people point to over over that government.
1: And I don't think even if we see the documents, even if they say exactly what Frank uh, Franklin Camp uh, said, they said, I think that will be further for tarnish uh, the the reputation of, of John Howard. But I, th- I, th- I think he'll he'll still be seen as a, a great conservative leader, you know, regardless of it. So I mean, I still think that the big danger you talk about, you know, politicisation and so on. I think that that it does really, to me, illustrate the dangers of letting politics guide policy and and guide the the public service. And
0: also the importance of a fearless and well-resourced media, I think, Mark. I couldn't
1: have said it better myself, Ben.
0: Um, Mark, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. I mean, I was down in Canberra in the press gallery um, when nine eleven happened, so uh, I remember this very, very well, and 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 I remember you being in the news for um <laughs> for this episode. Um, look, that's it for this episode. Um, but we'll see you next time up, up the creek. The creek.